Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver Trading. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and I'm pleased to welcome back to the program James Corbett. As you all know, James is the founder and editor of the Corbett Report, and he started that in 2007, and he does it all. He edits, writes, produces, and, of course, hosts the Corbett Report. In addition to that schedule... He became the editorial writer for the international forecaster that was created by the economic analyst, Bob Chapman. And make sure you visit James' website at thecorbettreport.com, thecorbettreport.com. And you can even request a complimentary issue of the international forecaster by going to their website, theinternationalforecaster.com. James, how are you this evening? I'm very good. Thank you for that introduction. But I should throw a little love to my video editor, Brock West. I, uh, I used to do it all, all. Now he does my video editing. And without that, I don't think I'd be able to do it all 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 anymore. It is a a lot of work, as you can imagine. So it's a good thing I have a video editor these days. All right. Yes. Uh, How many views? I mean, are are your videos just on YouTube or how many views have you received in or, or, or is it countable? Uh, it isn't really countable. That's the thing. I mean, how do you count them? And how does, I mean, even a platform like YouTube, how do they count them? If you watch one minute of a 10 minute video, have you watched the video? Does that count as a watch? Do you have to watch all 10 minutes? I mean, they have their own ways of dealing with that question. I don't know. I think when, when people throw numbers around like that, you may as well be drawing it out of a hat. I can tell you it's in the tens of millions. There are tens of millions of views on YouTube alone, but I definitely do not just post to YouTube. I post to many different outlets. Outlets and uh, and consciously so because I do not want YouTube to be that monopoly because I am well aware that they could come along at any time and sweep my channel away from their uh, their platform and if I wasn't uh, posting to other platforms I, all those videos would be lost to the ether but I post to DTube which is a blockchain based uh, alternative uh, video platform where it is saved on a blockchain through the IPFS the interplanetary file system so once it's up there and uh, encoded in the blockchain there's no way to really get rid of it I also post to BitChute which uh, works on web torrent technology which essentially allows for seed, uh, peer-to-peer seeding of videos so it's not a centralized platform uh, like YouTube and I also host videos directly on my own servers. So until, unless and until they take down the Corporate Report website itself, you will always have that repository there. Well, that's incredible. That really is impressive. And I thank you for doing all that work because it's so important in today's world. Yeah. And uh, could I just throw in a, a plug? Uh, that's a good point to mention. Of course, you know, who knows what internet censorship flip uh, switch can yeah. be flipped at any time. So it is a good idea to be backing this up. Of course, all of my material is absolutely freely available for download. But for ease of convenience and to support my work, you can buy my data DVDs, which uh, that basically each year I put out a data DVD that has all of the stuff, all the podcasts, all the videos, everything that I did, did on that year in one DVD that you can purchase at CorbettReport.com slash shop. Oh, fantastic. Um, listeners, thecorbettreport.com. Anything, there's so much to talk about. And of course, we're going to start out, uh, well, eventually we're going to start discussing the, the Trump administration, the media. Uh, we all know yesterday's courtroom action former Trump campaign manager, Paul Manafort, he was found guilty of eight felonies. You have Trump's former quote-unquote fixer, Michael Cohen. He pleaded guilty to eight felonies and essentially told the judge that his formal, former boss 
um, directed him to violate campaign finance laws. I don't know if this is a great question to ask you, but your take uh, on all of this Washington dysfunction and how is it being addressed in the mainstream media in the United States, but also in your part of the world? Yeah, well, I can tell you it is not a pressing issue over here, and it's not being covered breathlessly by the news, as I'm sure, and as I know it is in the United States, obviously, because clearly this is an internal domestic political matter in the United States more so than anything else. It could have profound ramifications, obviously, if we do see some sort of impeachment or whatever, but until that point, I don't think there's a lot of interest in the ins and outs of this investigation in Asia, and there's no interest whatsoever in this from myself uh, as an, an anarchist, a voluntarist, a whatever you want to call it, as someone who does not participate in the political process of voting for a kinder or gentler slave master. I couldn't care less which uh, which person is in that seat of power or which person is grabbing the, the ring of power. And even so, I mean, does anyone really think did they really believe that the president really controls the country and no. is the decider? No, clearly not. The, uh, the, the real string pullers are the ones at, at the very first level of analysis, the ones who literally create the money might be the place to look. And in that regard, you'd be looking at the Federal Reserve. And in that respect, I mean, more interesting to me than the ins and outs of this investigation is the uh, recent comments by Trump about uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and his uh, announcement about interest rates and continuing the hike. And uh, Trump is mad about that. Uh, more so, more interesting than that particular dynamic is the way that that's covered. Uh, I'm seeing that being covered in the U.S. media, where they're <gasps> feigning shock and horror. Oh my God, a president trying to tell the Federal Reserve what to do. This is this is horrible. And I think that speaks to a much more important and interesting power relationship that exists within the U.S. government, of which the Federal Reserve is technically a part. It is a creature of government. It is based on a statute that was initially passed in 1913, and then uh, on a, what was initially going to be a 20-year basis, but then it was extended, and it's now indefinite. The Federal Reserve is just uh, a part of government, but it's independent from government. And there's no president that can tell the, uh, the Federal Reserve what to do, as uh, Alan Greenspan said on PBS a number of years ago. And that's right. It is, uh, it's this weird independent creature of government that really does control the money supply. And that is an interesting uh, uh, dynamic. And so it's interesting to see, of course, the press freak out that a president would even question what the Federal Reserve is doing. Well, it's interesting, though, because Trump chose Jerome Powell to take the position of the Federal Reserve chairman after Janet Yellen. I mean, what did he expect? Yeah, I mean, I, but I mean, another thing to keep in mind with this is that the chairman is appointed by the president, but is always a, there's always a pre pre selected list of the short list of candidates that is handed to the president, and you know here's your options. So who are you going to go with? And I mean, there's no certainty in any of these types of appointments or picks. I mean, even with the Supreme Court pick, you could end up picking a justice that doesn't rule the way you thought they were going to rule or uh, whatever, what, you know, things along those lines. And in this case, yeah, it doesn't mean that Powell is a minion of Trump and will do anything that he says. And in fact, uh, the most recent quote that I saw from one of these stories about Trump is questioning the Federal Reserve was uh, a quote about uh, asking, well, what do you think of Powell so far? What do you think of your pick? And he said, I'll tell you in seven years. So <laughs> it really is, I think, a roll of the dice once you appoint someone in a position like that, what, what way they're going to act. Well, you know, government always wants a weaker dollar. You have 
you know, my buddy, and I say that to <laughs> Larry Kudlow, always is King Dollar, interviewed shortly after he was elected his economic advisor to President Trump, uh, buy King Dollar, sell gold. And so that is sort of, he's sort of in the mix too of he wants a stronger dollar, Trump wants a weaker dollar, you have the Federal Reserve. So it's like, you know, they're all working against one another or is it just, again, just distractions and, you know, this is going to play out regardless of, you know, their statements, uh, what they want and so forth. I wouldn't call it a distraction. I mean, these are really fundamental issues, not just to the economy, but to society itself. Ultimately, the decisions that are made about monetary policy have that knock-on effect that really steer entire civilizations one way or another. And we can, I mean, there's a fascinating history to be written. I'm sure it's been written many times in many ways, but the, I think to concentrate specifically on history, the rise and fall of empires specifically related to their monetary policy would be a fascinating study and one that I... Uh, I myself might undertake if I find a spare 20 years hiding under a couch somewhere. But, uh, but uh, that, I mean, that is one of the fundamental questions about uh, society and where it's going is the, the monetary policy and, and what way are you managing that and blah, blah, blah. And so I, I wouldn't call it distraction, but uh, this is certainly a circumscribed discussion because, of course, it's all taking place within the framework of the system as it exists, the Federal Reserve System and the creation of most of the money supply, not 100%, but the vast majority of uh, the money supply is created through debt that is ultimately owed back to the bankers, um, including money that the United States government is borrowing. Um, and why do they have to borrow when they, uh, specifically in the Constitution, it says Congress creates the money, but they don't create the money. What's going on? So these are fundamental issues, but of course, it's all taking place in that within the, the, the very narrow lines that are prescribed for these types of debates. So uh, again, it is important. And whether the Fed is tightening or loosening or what kind of policy they're enacting, whether they're doing QE or whatever, these things do have real effects on people's real day-to-day -day lives. It's just that th those effects are so seem so distant from the actions that most people don't don't really understand and don't follow and don't care about these these types of matters. They're much more interested in you know Stormy Daniels and whatever whatever lawyer said what to who in the campaign in the last last year. <laughs> or they're also interested in just knowing that the the U.S. bull paper market became the longest on record. And yeah. you know yeah, many point. of my yeah many of my clients are very puzzled. Uh, it seems like nothing disrupts, you know, the the everyday workings of Wall Street, the paper markets, and everybody understands the amount of debt that this country is carrying. Uh, everybody understands the European problems with Brexit, Italy. I guess Greece is coming along okay, at least temporarily. If they've been out of the news, they're supposedly able to handle their debt a little bit more. I mean, there's just everywhere you look – there's something that – I think we've talked about this before, but again, no reactions to any of these actions. And, and it's, it's sometimes mind-boggling to yeah. think that something would just move a little bit. Yeah, mind-boggling is a good way. word for it. Yeah, mind-boggling because uh, uh, we are thinking rationally. And we're thinking, well, causes and effects are related, and here's here's an action, it should have this effect. But in 
the world that has been created, the magical wizardry world of Wall Street, that no longer applies, and it hasn't for some time. You could argue, I suppose, since the inception of the current monetary system, it hasn't, but especially in our day and age, where uh, certainly since the 2008 crisis and the resulting actions of that from the Federal Reserve uh, and its like-minded brethren central bankers around the world, uh, it, it has skewed economic reality to the point where, as I've talked about before, there's an inversion that happened. We are now living in a magical time where, uh, in uh, still to this day, bad news is uh, bad economic news is often considered by the markets to be good news because it just means there's more government intervention on the way. They, they won't let it collapse, so we know if there's bad news, they're just going to flood the, the markets with more magical... Uh, QE money or something like that. And so we have this inversion going on. And yeah, as you say, I, I, the the idea that we are in the highest recorded level markets in history, record markets, and the longest bull run in history, and all of this irrational exuberance, one might say, for for what? We are on the precipice of so many different cataclysms, geopolitically and economically, uh, throughout the world. And we are now in such an interconnected global market that if something happens in China, it would have a knock-on effect everywhere in the world, including, of course, the United States and vice versa. And, and many other countries besides could start a contagion that could spread around the world. It's a very perilous situation. And it doesn't necessarily mean doomsday or cataclysm is coming tomorrow. But the idea that the markets are uh, almost euphoric and celebrating what's going on around the world, of course, makes no sense. And it can only be seen from the perspective of the elimination of that moral hazard that uh, that in any moral in any rational universe would keep people in in check and in line if you fail you're going to fail well uh, the grand blinking neon light flashing sign that was posted in 2008 says hey guys if you fail well you might be too big to fail so we'll come in and help you and that has eliminated any rationality from the markets yeah, it's like everybody is just going through all these emotions day in, day out, no passion, no emotion. <laughs> it just drives me insane because it's just like I, you want to wake up the world. It's like everybody went to sleep and, and, and it's just like we are on another plane. And you're right. You know, most of, you know, we think rationally. We try to, you know, connect the dots and see what's going on and so forth. We know that the world economies have been synchronized, so that, you know, to the degree that they are and that, that just can't stay together. It's it, it's it's beyond the realm of possibilities to keep this world synchronized, moving s smoothly without something coming and uh, certainly affecting many many people. Yeah, well, the and, synchronization uh, is possible. This running smoothly is the other aspect well, of yeah, it. And in fact, any destabilization or any great cataclysm that happened now would just be a further impetus for the people who were. Back in 2008, pushing for the New World Order, as they were calling it back in the, uh, the 2009 G20 summit, they were calling for a New World Order, Gordon Brown and others, because, you know, here we are in this new economic reality, we need to do something. Well, that those cries would be even more intense in this day and age. Oh, well, now clearly capitalism has failed, as they would say, and what we need is coordinated action by the central banks of the world acting in unison, and that will be the only thing to save us. So I have no doubt that whatever happens, the solution that's going to be proposed is more synchronization of the global economy under the rubric of the central bank system. Well, you know, um, the Treasury yields um, curve continues to narrow and gets closer to inverting. 
Um, these have been, um, and every inverted yield curve over the last 50 years has predicted a subsequent recession. Are we going to see that? Uh, is that something to look for? Is this, are there any signs? Or Yeah, that's just... the question. Are there any signs? Because I, I have seen at least two or 300 different signs, indicators, hey, every time this has <laughs> happened in history, it's followed by a recession in the next quarter kind of thing in the last several years. I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens yeah. and dozens and dozens of these. None of them have eventuated yet. <laughs> and it is sure. just a question of when. I mean, I, I have no doubt about it. This is not like this is some sort of, oh, now it's done and we're over and everything's recovered. Uh, no, there's clearly the piper will be paid. But when and how, I don't, there's no indicator like that. No, no chart, no graph, no statistic that I've seen that is convincing in and of itself to me. I think if you put it together, then you can really see the, the bigger picture that, yes, everything is blinking red, but it's always the question of what's the event that will kick it off, and I don't think anyone really has the answer to that. As this show is being recorded on Wednesday night, Asian markets uh, open cautiously. Uh, investors are looking to the trade talks between Beijing and D.C., Washington, with the new U.S. tariffs and $16 billion of Chinese imports that are set to take effect uh, later Thursday. Um, China says that the, if they go through with it, the, the U.S. on the new tariffs, they're going to retaliate. Um, so... Um, do you think well I'm going to let you think about that until we come back for this next break James and uh, ladies and gentlemen we'll be right back right after these few short messages and thank you for listening to Financial Survival And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and I'm here with James Corbett of the Reco- uh, Corbett Report. Please visit, please visit his website, thecorbettreport.com. Sorry about that, James. <laughs> no problem. But uh, um, in your your most recent article on thecorbettreport.com talks about the secret battle for Africa. You write that there's now a U.S. African command. Um, that it was established in 2007. It has been the centerpiece of uh, uh, my country's attempts to gain a military foothold on the African continent. You continue that the extent of U.S. Special Forces penetration in Africa is a reality that is still only gradually being revealed to the public. Um, Please tell us more. Right. So I start that article noting that story from uh, late last year where it turned out there were three Green Berets killed and two more injured in an action they were performing in Niger, to which everyone said, what? Why are the Green Berets doing stuff in Niger and what's going on there? And U.S. African Command? What? What is that? Uh, yes, there is a United States Africa Command. It was created and established in 2007. And I do have uh, some... Uh, some reporting on my site up in the archives about that when it was uh, first getting going. And essentially, surprise, surprise, uh, the United States' idea for getting involved, more involved in Africa and potentially exploiting, of course, the, uh, the resources of Africa has always taken a military flavor, and more so in recent years with the establishment of U.S. Africa, AFRICOM. Uh, and 
So the special forces in Niger and other other places, as it's gradually revealed here and there in a story of, oh, and some people were killed over here, uh, we're starting to get the sense that there's a much greater penetration of special forces generally into Africa because there is no African military base. The U.S. It doesn't have a base uh, in Africa, so they have to uh, do cooperation and joint ventures and these types of things with cooperative governments. Um, and... So one way to get a handle on this is to look at the fact there are now f- uh, 1,400 uh, U.S. Special Forces that are deployed in Africa at the moment, which is about f- 16.5% of all the U.S. Commandos, Green Berets deployed overseas. To put that number in perspective, a decade ago, back in 2006, uh, there was 1% of U.S. Special Forces deployed overseas were deployed in Africa, so about 70 Special Forces. Now there's 1,400. So there's been a vast buildup over the past decade. And of course, that's been done under the cover of essentially North Africa and these different Al-Qaeda or ISIS or terrorist boogeyman du jour um, groups in this or that country. And so we have to go in to get them kind of thing. Um, But I think the, the bigger picture of what's developing here is, as I call it, a secret battle for Africa that's taking place between the United States and China right now. And the Chinese are not, I would say, primarily approaching it as a military struggle. Although it is interesting to note, as I'm sure my listeners are aware, last year China did open its first ever overseas military base in Djibouti. Djibouti? Why Djibouti? Well, at Djibouti, if you go and look in the map, you will see it's an exceptionally geostrategically important location, being right there uh, in a very key shipping route um, that will, presumably, uh, China wants to maintain access to the shipping routes to and from Africa, specifically from Africa, so they can get African oil and resources shipped up to China. And having a military base in Djibouti would be, I think, an important step towards that. So there is that aspect of it. But more importantly, from the Chinese side, is the economic side of it, the economic intervention into Africa, which... Uh, is being done largely under the cover at this point of the Belt and Road Initiative, the trillion-dollar global investment initiative that China's doing. But uh, And that's taking the form of uh, de- uh, bilateral deals and cooperation agreements with uh, Kenya and Senegal and Rwanda. And we've seen uh, all sorts of infrastructure projects popping up in Ethiopia and Angola and Tanzania that are uh, aided by China in various ways. They give low-interest loans, they uh, help with the construction itself, and uh, everyone ends up happier and better off. The Africans get the, their infrastructure developed out, and the Chinese get the access to those resources and a, true, you know, a happy trading partner. So everyone wins. As the Chinese like to say, it's a win-win situation. Except the cracks are starting to show in that, and the economic imperialism aspect of what China is engaging in is starting to come to the forefront. I did note in that article specifically about Madagascar and how Madagascar was happy when the Chinese investors started moving in and, oh, there's going to be development and infrastructure and what have you. And, oh, by the way, we're going to buy up your farmland and your, uh, your, your land at pennies on the dollar and you're going to take it. Because that's the way this rolls. And so people are starting to get a bit uneasy about this. Uh, not only in Africa, in Asia as well. Uh, the incoming Malaysian Prime Minister, uh, Mahathir Mohamed, just cancelled a couple of very big infrastructure projects that uh, had been agreed with China in the previous administration. He cancelled them saying, our local contractors could do this for half the price. Why are we paying Chinese contractors all this money to do it for us? Um, and 
people are starting to question the loans and the way those loans are being operated. For example, in Sri Lanka, there was a deep water port that was constructed with Chinese aid and with Chinese uh, construction um, that it wasn't able to end up paying for itself. It couldn't, they couldn't pay the loan payments that were uh, required to pay back China for the construction of the port. So now the Chinese state-owned company has taken over control of that port on a 99-year lease. So there are these hidden booby traps, of course, that always come with this type of economic aid um, that really represent the sort of neo-economic imperialism aspect of what China is doing. Uh, having said that, Generally speaking, I would say a lot of African countries are more comfortable and happy dealing at least with the economic imperialism of China, which does have its benefits and we do see infrastructure and things being built, as opposed to the United States coming in with the barrel of the gun and pointing the gun at them. And in the article, I point specifically to a speech made by uh, Muammar Gaddafi um, not too many years before his death in which he talked specifically about that and said that uh, China doesn't interfere in the internal affairs of other states. It doesn't bring in soldiers. Uh, more than 600 Chinese corporations are penetrating deep into Africa and some Chinese communities have started to settle in Africa. This is China's soft approach. And then he goes on to say, because of that soft approach, Africans are welcoming China warmly. This will no doubt be to China's benefit. Afghans are wary of the U.S. Uh, sorry, Africans are wary of the U.S. because of its harsh approach. This is proof of the folly of American policy, and we all know what happened to Muammar Gaddafi just a couple of years after he uttered those words. So, maybe proving the point that American military might and intervention uh, seems to be America's answer to how to get a better foothold in Africa. So, what do you see happening on the African continent in this regard over the next decade? Over the next decade. It's very difficult to difficult. say because of so many different factors, but uh, at least in the near term, I think that Africa is, again, by and large, happy to cozy up with China at this stage of the game. And one example of that that I point to in the article is the African Union headquarters. Yes, there is an African Union, and they did have a headquarters constructed in 2012, constructed mostly by uh, Chinese companies, even using materials from China. Uh, as, as a kind of gift that uh, China gave to the African Union. Here, have a headquarter. Uh, so that was constructed in 2012. Well, as Le Monde reported earlier this year, late last year, uh, they discovered, hey, it seems our computers every evening are sending all of this data over to some servers in Beijing. What's going on? It seems that China had uh, booby-trapped and basically uh, bugged the African Union headquarters that they constructed and had been listening in on those conversations for the last several years. After that story was released, uh, the African Union actually held a joint press conference with China to say, hey, no, no, that's all fake news. We, there was no bugging. It's, it's all fine. Don't, don't, don't think about that. And, oh, by the way, this September, China is going to be throwing a big economic infrastructure investment summit with African Union leaders. So uh, more, more tens of billions are going to be sloshed around. I'm of the cynical sort. I think there may have been a bit of, uh, hey, we'll, uh, we'll invest much more money in you guys. You just, you know, quiet this up. Uh, that's the way my mind works. But either way, it looks, at least in the short term, that there's going to be a lot more investment coming from China, unless and until there's some, some way to stop that. And the United States, I, again, I think is probably thinking in a military sense. Hmm. I can remember Obama 
at a, a very big summit with all the African leaders in D.C. Um, during his term. I can't remember which term it was or what year it was, but uh, uh, I, I, I didn't understand at that point in time what the big deal was. It was probably so. Um, so Africa is becoming a very important country. Um, continent. continent, yes. Thank you. Um, so very interesting, very interesting. I also read where uh, the Prime Minister Abe and President Trump agreed that they're going to work together um, toward uh, the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Um, they apparently discussed the, the latest situation surrounding North Korea and are coordinating their policies in, in dealing with the country. Um, the telephone conversation came ahead of uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's expected visit to Pyongyang, um, and it would be his fourth uh, visit. Are you hearing anything about this in your neck of the woods, and would you like to comment? Well, yes, of course. I mean, obviously, people are still very closely watch watching what's happening uh, in, in, in Korea and with regards to the Korean Peninsula, and any potential progress towards denuclearization, but I would take any kind of announcements or pronouncements of, you know, we commit ourselves, we want a nuclear-free Korea, Korean Peninsula. Those are, I mean, it, that's just political blather, and it amounts to nothing in the real world unless and until they actually are able to accomplish it. How will they accomplish that? In what way? What specific form will that take? The devil is always in the details. So, um, I'll believe it when, when I see it. It's nice to see them at least giving lip service to the fact that most people do want to see some sort of resolution to the Korean War, which is still technically ongoing, and a denuclearization of Korea, because that cannot be a good thing for humanity's sake. So one would hope there would be some resolution to this. But uh, in terms of what's happening behind closed doors in negotiations, you know, who knows? And in in what uh, way that could possibly develop. So again, it's one of those things I file under the uh, believe it when I see it. But uh, we might get more information when apparently Abe and Trump are going to be meeting in New York next month. So there may be something more substantive, at least in terms of actual agreements between the U.S. and Japan. But until then, who knows? Is Abe getting any closer to resolving the issue of the uh, Japanese nationals that were abducted by the North Korean agents in the 70s and 80s? Is that any closer to being settled? Uh, no. Um, I think, really, uh, all that could have been expected and all that was really accomplished was, I believe, uh, Trump uh, raised the issue. I believe. I'm not sure on that. But I believe he raised the issue uh, in his meeting with Kim or something along those lines. But in terms of the resolution of this issue, I just don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Again, this is now a four-decade-old issue. Um, that is a, It's a big political issue here in Japan, but I just don't think it's going to be resolved quite like that. Um, probably more importantly for Abe uh, in the near term is his own question of his own uh, control over his party. Uh, there is, I believe, an internal uh, uh, party vote that's coming up soon on the leadership of the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan, the ruling party here, that essentially essentially is a contest for the prime ministership because obviously the leader of the party would likely take on that prime minister role. And there is a chance that Abe may be dethroned, um, which shouldn't be that surprising. He's been in power for, I don't know, five, six years now. It's been a, a very, in terms of Japanese prime minister's uh, lifetimes, that's, a, that's like a hundred years. So um, it's not surprising. He's, uh, there's been some scandals and things that are threatening to take him down. So he, who knows how long he'll continue to be in power and whether he will continue to be in the position to meet with Trump or talk about Korea and the Korean future.
Uh, it looks like Japan and China, they're also in talks to resume a bilateral currency swap arrangement between their central banks. I th- three trillion uh, yen, which is, I think, about, what, $27 billion in, uh, well, $27 billion in U.S. dollars. Um, looks like it, it might fall in relations uh, between the world's second and third largest economies. Um, we know that they're, they have soured between one another in recent years due to the, the territorial disputes and tensions. Um, any comments on that? I, I must admit I haven't seen this story yet, so I will uh, reserve comment on it. But uh, that is actually, I mean, uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the, the sort of economic monetary side of it, uh, that's obviously fascinating. But it, just in terms of what that means for political um, relations, diplomatic relations is also important because, as I understand, this was a currency swap agreement that had been in place, um, but that had been canceled. And so if they are going ahead with uh, resuming this agreement, that could be potentially an important step towards some sort of uh, fostering of warmer relations between uh, Beijing and Tokyo generally. Um, But again, I, I don't know the details of this story. All right. Uh, We have about a minute and a half of the program left. Uh, Would you like to end uh, the program with something that's uh, um, perhaps we didn't uh, cover this evening? A deep and profound thought for the day. Uh, Yes, thank you. Yeah, well, (laughs) as always, there's so much going on that uh, all I can do is choose, pick and choose what topics I'm I'm able to cover and in what way. Um, But I am looking at the issue of uh, a Germany apparently coming along to propose a uh, an alternative payment uh, settlement system, uh, an uh, alternative network to the SWIFT network, which your listeners might know about, the uh, which is essentially the global payment system that, that uh, banks use to coordinate and, and settle international transactions, which is heavily politically influenced by the United States, although technically, theoretically, it's a neutral organization. But when the United States comes along and says things like, well, delist Iran, it will go and delist Iran so that suddenly Iranian banks can't contact the outside world. So Germany is now getting on board and saying, we need an alternative to this. I think that's interesting and something that I might be writing about in the international forecast. Maybe 